I know you join me in looking forward to our final speaker of the 2022 conference, Emily Kramer Golenkoff. Emily, who lives with CF, is the co-founder of Emily's Entourage, a foundation that accelerates research for new treatments and a cure for nonsense mutations of cystic fibrosis. Since 2011, Emily's Entourage has awarded millions of dollars in research grants and led worldwide efforts to drive high-impact research and drug development. Emily has a master's degree in bioethics and certification in clinical ethics mediation from the University of Pennsylvania. Emily was named a champion of change for President Obama's Precision Medicine Initiative and is the recipient of the 2016 Global Genes Rare Champion of Hope for Advocacy Award. Today, she'll talk about the power of science, community, and desperation to speed life-saving breakthroughs for the final 10%. Please help me welcome Emily Kramer Golenkoff. Thank you so much. And Jim, thank you for such a warm welcome. A special thank you to the incomparable Siri Vase and to Sabine Brandt, Kelsey Hale, and the whole CFRI team for having me here today. I'm really profoundly honored to participate. And finally, thank you all for joining. So today I'm actually gonna start with a story. In 2010, I joined CF to chat Who here remembers CF to chat For those of you that aren't familiar, CF to chat was an old school online forum built specifically for the CF community that originally came from a group on MSN. Think rich, intimate message threads, avatars instead of names. We're talking prehistoric internet days here. It was a place where you could bring your deepest, darkest, most undignified truths and fears and lay it all out on the table with nothing to hide. A safe haven and also sometimes a terrifying glimpse into, what, into the future of what laid ahead. There was love, loss, shame, revelations, validation, and profound soulful connections. It was a place where many of us elders with CF came of age and came to terms with this beast of a disease. We were all trying to figure out how in the world to live with, and in some cases to die from. CF to chat was my first real introduction to the online CF community. It was a community that I had previously kept a distance from out of fear of making friends and losing them, of uncovering what laid ahead, out of anger and hatred for CF. CF was toxic and I wanted nothing to do with it. And probably, if I'm being honest, out of some denial too. I was a recent college graduate pursuing a career in healthcare marketing at the time, out there living my best life. CF was something to be managed and I did so meticulously, but I kept it tucked away in the corners of my life. And so joining CF to chat was a big step for me. I was a lurker on there long before I summoned the courage to post. I read and I learned. I got familiar with the different personalities and oh, there were personalities. Lurking is like the gateway drug. It was only a matter of time before I got the urge to dip my toe in a little bit deeper. On the message boards, people kept mentioning these lively late night chats. And let's be honest, if there's one thing that is true of the CF community, it is that we own the late night space. I was intrigued. And so one night I found myself compelled to join one of the legendary late night chats. I wasn't gonna participate, I told myself. I would observe and ease my way in cautiously. I just wanted to get a sense of what these live chats were all about. And so a little nervous, very intimidated and thoroughly curious, I clicked join. Within seconds, I saw a big message flash on the chat screen. It was from seven stars. Welcome, Emily KG. What is your lung function? What bacteria do you colonize in your lungs? I felt totally accosted and exposed, so much for my discreet entrance. The questions were invasive, even nosy, but somehow at the same time, they were also kind of strangely familiar and welcoming. And so it was that on a late night, curled over my computer, 
albuterol aerosolizing into my lungs, vest vibrating on my chest, that I realized I had found my people. I was done fighting and distancing myself from CF. It was clear that this was right where I belonged and it felt good. Hi, I'm Emily from Philly, 38% and MRSA, I responded. This was 2010, two years before the first CFTR modulators would be approved for 4% of the CF population. It was a time when we were all contending with the same killer disease that CF had always been, before we could ever imagine the ways our CF world was about to change. It was a lifetime ago. Since then, almost everything has changed. First, it was 4%, then it was 50%, and now 90% of the CF community is eligible for a CFTR modulator that radically changes the quality and trajectory of so many people's lives. We've experienced a pregnancy boom. People have gone to graduate school and launched new businesses. They've started running marathons and picked up new hobbies, even traveled the world. People have started dreaming of a future that previously felt too dangerous to even entertain. Perhaps most powerfully, people have gained the freedom and the space to think about things other than CF for once in their lives. And if that weren't enough, what's maybe the most wild to me is that they've started to see their lung function go up, defying the inevitable descent of CF for the first time in decades and maybe even ever. It's been mind boggling to witness. I feel overcome with pride for our community with each new accomplishment that people achieve. My heart swells as I see people's true spirits and character and talents start to emerge now that the heavy fog of CF has lifted, even just a little bit. It's crazy what you can do when your days and your brain space are not entirely consumed by CF. For me, that concept is still a thought experiment though, still just a pipe dream. With 30% lung function and two copies of a nonsense mutation, I am part of the final 10% that doesn't benefit from any of the currently available CFTR modulators. I am still swimming against the current, paddling my hardest, fighting the natural progression of this disease with all of my might, still coming to terms with the gut-wrenching realization that no amount of discipline or hard work, will or love can effectively halt the inevitable progression of this beast of a disease. That is our dear old CF, rabid, vile, vile, and unthinkably unfair. So back in 2011, I experienced the collision of two powerful but opposing forces. The first was that for the first time in CF history, there was real hope. CFTR modulators in development that were poised to revolutionize the face and the trajectory of this disease. And the second was desperation. Despite my best efforts, my disease was rapidly progressing. My lung function had hit the low 30s. I was diagnosed with CF-related diabetes. I was becoming resistant to all available antibiotics, running out of conventional treatment options. The hopeful advances that were coming down the pike weren't gonna benefit people with nonsense mutations like me. And it was that collision of hope and desperation that formed the, that spurred the formation of Emily's Entourage. My family, friends, and I decided that we couldn't just sit back and let nature take its course. So we dove in head first, launching Emily's Entourage to speed life-saving breakthroughs and a cure for the final 10% of the CF community. At the time, game-changing advances were in development for G551D. And the groundswell of focus was shifting to Delta F508, given its prevalence in the CF community. But for those of us with nonsense and other rare mutations, there was virtually nothing being done. The science was harder to crack, and researchers were singularly focused on much more common mutations. We were not on the research radar. Nobody was paying attention. And the worst part 
wasn't just the lack of treatments in the pipeline, but rather the lack of hope for future ones, as we quickly realized that there wasn't even an infrastructure in place to get new treatments targeting rare and nonsense mutations into the pipeline. And so we set out to build a foundation of the future that changes the way and the pace with which drug development is done. From the start, our mission at Emily's Entourage was singular, to bring life-saving treatments to the final 10% of the CF community and to do it fast. We were not interested in recreating the wheel. Rather, our goal was to fill critical areas of unmet need and to operate quickly. We sought to support work that otherwise wouldn't happen or to make it happen faster than it otherwise would. Our strategy was as follows. We wanted to de-risk high-risk, high-reward research to generate early data and attract funding from larger organizations. To remove operational barriers by developing key research tools so that the only thing that stood between us and breakthroughs was pure science. To identify technologies and attract researchers and companies to CF from other disciplines to spur out-of-the-box ideas and black swan events as they say, to infuse new capital into the CF space, and to cultivate a community of researchers, companies, people with CF, CF families, regulators, and more, all focused on accelerating research and drug development for those in the final 10% of the CF community. This was all new to us. We had no idea what we were doing, but what we did have is a crystal clear vision of where we wanted to go. What we lacked in knowledge, we more than made up for with passion, laser focus, and tireless hard work. And it turns out that having an outsider status can actually be an asset to innovation. We leveraged our outsider status to see things in new and fresh ways and reimagine the way that research and drug development could be done. 10 years later, and my goodness, we have come a long way. Among our highlights, We've raised over $10 million. We've awarded 25 research grants to top academic institutions around the world and secured over $37.8 million in follow-on funding. We deployed a venture philanthropy model to spin out a CF gene therapy company called Spirovant that is currently submitting a new drug application to the FDA to begin clinical trials soon. We developed a phage therapy named Malachi in loving memory of Mallory Smith to treat MRSA that is currently being evaluated by the FDA as an emergency compassionate use treatment for an individual with CF. We hosted a patient listening session with the FDA to advocate for the urgent unmet needs of the final 10%. And we built a strong and tight-knit scientific community and hosted seven scientific meetings. And we're currently planning um, our eighth one on gene therapy, gene editing, and delivery um, in 2023. These last few years, we've been racing, leading the charge to close the gap for the final 10%, pushing the boundaries of what's possible. The progress is undeniable and hope is wonderful, but hope alone is insufficient. We need treatments, treatments that reach people with CF and treatments that come fast, like really, really fast. So back in 2011, we saw the advances coming for G551D and then the scientific community full attention and resources turned to one thing and one thing only, extending the breathtaking progress to those with Delta F508. Who could blame them? given its vast prevalence with 90% of the CF community having at least one mutation. Science is amazing and brilliant scientists are even more amazing. I wholeheartedly believe that there is nothing that they can't do. And so sure enough, with the undivided focus of the most talented CF scientific minds and significant financial investment, that hope transformed into reality for roughly 90% of our CF community with the monumental approval of Trikafta in 2019, dramatically changing the CF landscape in ways we could have never imagined. 
I will never forget reading the accounts of people taking their first doses of Trikafta, documenting daily updates on Facebook. These updates captured what the data never could, the coughing that subsided, the breathing that deepened, the hours each day freed from tethering treatments, the dreams and futures reclaimed, the sounds of silence as one dad poetically wrote. Now, I have never been a cynic. I have always believed in science, but reading those updates, I remember being incredulous at the marvels of medicine that a little pill could produce these transformations and sometimes in a matter of minutes. Three pills a day, radically changing the trajectory of this deadly disease right before our eyes. And just like that, 90% of the CF community set off on their historic his ascent to better health. For the first time in their lives, they were defying the inevitable descent of CF. Their symptoms were abating. Their medical treatments were reducing. They could stand taller. They could run further. They could dream bigger. They could breathe. And here I was on the opposite end of the spectrum, battling resistant lung infections and dwindling lung function, plunging deeper into the cavernous decay of end-stage disease. That feeling of perishing was only magnified by the radical transformations that so many in the CF community were experiencing around me. Up versus down, hope versus no hope, life versus death. It was like our CF community had been divided into two, the haves and the have-nots, 90% with unprecedented, unbridled hope, 10% with nothing. Helpless, hopeless, and running out of time, this was rock bottom, and it was an excruciating place to be. People often describe the emotion of not benefiting from CFTR modulators as bittersweet. But for me, that description has never exactly captured it. Because even in the midst of my desperation and heartache, I was so happy for my CF friends who benefited. My happiness was pure and unadulterated. There was nothing bitter about the sweetness and I wouldn't have traded it for anything. I just desperately yearned for the rest of us to share in the progress too. Still, there is no denying that the approval of the modulators fragmented the CF community, creating massive disparities in health status, treatment needs, access, and prognosis. No longer were we one uniform group contending with the same disease. Suddenly, we were fractured into thousands of CFTR subpopulations, each with a radically different variation of this disease. And while we often talk about the final 10% that was left behind. The truth is that 10% is actually not accurate. In fact, it is a vast underestimate because 10% only refers to individuals with genetic mutations that are ineligible for CFTR modulators. But the reality is that there are many other subpopulations that don't benefit either. Those are people with comorbidities that preclude them from taking modulators people that develop intolerable side effects that have to stop modulators, people that don't respond to modulators, people who are post-transplant for whom modulators came too late, people who live in parts of the world that don't have access to modulators, and lest we ever forget, people that died far too early because they never got the chance to try. In fact, within Asian, Black, Hispanic, and Native American populations, the number is considerably higher than 10%, with roughly 17 to 40% of people not benefiting from modulators, which only further compounds the existing systemic issues that lead to health inequality. Those of us that don't benefit from currently available modulators, we are the outliers, a collective of many outliers left behind by the breathtaking progress stuck on the outer cusp of science, 
exactly the place you never want to be. Well, being part of the group that's left behind was undeniably a tough pill to swallow. It didn't dampen my happiness for those who benefited or my utter awe at the miracles of science. In fact, it further fueled it. As if, rather, as if radically transforming the lives of those that benefited, providing huge jumps in lung function, huge reductions in frequency and severity of infections, even cutting the number of people who need lung transplants by two thirds and swooping in right before COVID struck, as if all of that was not enough. More than anything, what the modulators have done is shown us what's possible. After the promises that were made in 1989 that gene therapy would provide cures within five years, our community was jaded for good reason. The modulators have proven what science can do. They've turned us into believers again. And in doing so, they've wet our appetites even more. And that is a very good thing because we have come so far, but we are not there yet, not even close. Not for the 10% that are ineligible for the, for the modulators due to their mutations, whose lung function and quality of life continue to slip away. Not for the people with comorbidities or intolerable side effects who got tantalizingly close to their breakthrough only to have it snatched away. Not for the non-responders or those who are post-transplant contending with life-threatening infections, rejection, and cancer. Not for those who still don't have access to modulators who are continuing to lose their lives while life-saving medicines exist, but just beyond their reach. The progress is remarkable, but it isn't good enough. That was our motivation for starting Emily's Entourage 10 years ago. And that is my motivation for devoting my life my waning time and breath to securing a better future for 100% of the CF community, nobody left behind. That is my life's work. Because there are thousands of people just like me, vying to return to careers and start families, to run marathons and, and explore the world, to plan for a future that they actually believe in, and to start living a life that isn't entirely dictated by this beast of a disease. They deserve better and it's up to us to get there. For so long, my greatest fear was that a modulator would come for 90% and it would provide long awaited relief and then poof, everyone would disengage. And who could blame them? CF is traumatic and brutal. After being so tightly tethered to CF for so long, who wouldn't jump at the chance for some distance to take a little breather, to finally live a life that's not entirely dictated by CF? But what I can tell you is that these past few years, I've been buoyed in ways I can't describe in words and more times than I can count by people with CF, their families, and CF organizations like CFRI that have stepped up, raised their hands, and taken on this final chapter of the quest as their own. They've committed their time and energy, their talent, connections, and financial support to the final 10% and our work at Emily's Entourage. They have rallied behind our efforts to raise funds for research, to join our patient registry, to spread our surveys, and on a personal level, they've rallied behind me too, uplifting me during some of the toughest times and reminding me that I am not alone or forgotten. Upon marveling at the ways that Trikafta has changed one of my friend's lives, she responded to me, it won't ever feel right until the 10% get to do the same. Fragmented by mutations, united by heart and soul. That is the spirit of the CF community. That's the force that I felt when I first joined CF to chat. It's the force that pulled me in even when I was accosted by seven stars invasive questions. It's the power of community, of finding your people 
and knowing you are right where you belong. A lot has changed in the 12 years since that fateful late night chat, but one critical thing has not. The ride or die rock solid bond and solidarity of the CF community, it remains as intact as ever. Because what I've learned is that what binds us isn't symptoms or medicine. It isn't genetic mutations or even shared health traumas and shortened lifespans. What binds us is so much bigger, so much more transcendent than any of that. It is a shared history of overcoming the seemingly insurmountable, of persisting against all the odds, of carving out lives and dreams despite unthinkable adversity, of finding our voices and creating change, of proving what po it, what's possible, and of sticking together through thick and thin. We have come so far, but we are not there yet, not even close. Now, is not the time to let out a sigh of relief. Now is the time to double down, to shift it into high gear, to pool our collective talents and tenacity, to direct our undivided attention and funds to finish the job for the collective of outliers, every single last one of them, and to do it fast. Because while we may be composed of thousands of different CFTR subpopulations, really, when it comes down to it, we are one. And we, the CF community, we are only as strong as our weakest link, the outliers. This story, our story, is quite a tale, a story of breathtaking progress, of heartbreaking pain, of incomprehensible inequality, of transformation and innovation of heart and soul. But it's a story that's as of yet unfinished. It won't be done until we have life-saving breakthroughs for every single person with CF, every single mutation, every single person around the world, every single outlier, nobody left behind. So my friends, let's get going because we have one hell of an ending to write. And my goodness, it is time for the CF story to finally be complete. Thank you. Emily, <laughs> there are no words. And uh, I know you can't see the chat right now, but there is just an outpouring of love and support for you and gratitude for all you are doing. So thank you. That was just incredibly moving. Just need to take a moment. So we do have questions from people and we have about 15 minutes or so so we can uh, talk. So I'll start with the questions and I'm sure I have a long list of other things I'd love to talk about too. How much time and energy do you put into running the foundation, um, fundraising, and then choosing researchers? Yeah, um, well, we have a whole team of people that do it now. You know, we've grown a lot since our early days in 2011. So we now have a team of um, I think it's six people. My mom and I are unpaid volunteers um, and we have a whole team of people and there is a unbelievable amount of effort that goes into all aspects. And I know Siri can attest to this that, and I had no idea before we got involved in Emily's Entourage how hard it is, um, even things that seem like they would be really simple to do. So there's a massive amount of effort among tons of people, staff members, volunteers, you know, leadership, scientific advisory board members, like across the board, um, tons of time and effort and thought that go into um, everything from, you know, research to running the organization to, you know, our marketing and awareness and, and really every single piece of it. So a lot. How many outliers are there? I know you said it was more than 10%. And I think somebody else, you know, are there, are there any statistics on how many people, I think 10% gets thrown around and we certainly know that those numbers are not 
accurate once you break them down by race and ethnicity. Um, but do you have any information on you know the people who are technically eligible from for modulators but can't use them? Yeah. Um, well, the short answer is no, I don't know. Um, I think those are really important statistics that we need to figure out. You know, the area where we are most focused is people that um, are, is sort of the area, you know, people ineligible due to genetic mutations. Though a lot of the therapies that we are trying to advance, you know, many of them are mutation agnostic and would help people across the board. So I think, um, so no, I don't know those statistics. I think it's probably um, a lot higher than we might suspect. Um, I mean, certainly, there's lots of people around the world that still don't have access. I think there's a lot of people that, you know, unfortunately aren't able to take modulators. Um, and so I have a feeling those numbers are, you know, we, we know that within certain, you know, communities, it's 17 to 40%, but I think like all of these numbers are um, probably pretty significant underestimate. So I would love for someone to, 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 um, to try to figure out what those statistics are because I think it's actually really important. Um, somebody said, did you take any classes or courses to support your advocacy work? Yeah, it's actually a great question. So at the time that Emily Zontorch was starting, I was um, working in healthcare marketing and also getting my, my master's in bioethics um, in the evening. And um, it was actually, I often say that I, I really, I found my voice as an, adv as an advocate through that program because um, you know, I had had a lifetime of experience as everyone with CF has in, you know, the healthcare environment. And there had been tons of things that I was upset about, or, you know, honestly, these, these traumas that I had kind of always felt like were just sort of personal to me and, and kind of stuffed them away and didn't really think that much about them. And it was through this program that I realized that my experiences were like meant something and that there was something you could do about it and that there were people that actually cared to hear about it and learn about it. So I think it was like really my realization that, um, that I had valuable experiences like everyone who, you know, interacts with the healthcare industry and um, as much as we do. And so as my final project, so I kept finding myself sort of unintentionally working on and writing about, you know, and trying to grapple with these experiences that I had as a, as a patient myself. Um, and finally, for my, for my final project, I did a whole piece about participatory medicine and participatory research and how I felt like patients and families um, had the deepest vested interest in outcomes and, and should really be leading a lot of that work. And to make a long story short, I ended up getting connected to, a, um, to Medicine X, um, a conference out um, at Stanford. And um, that experience really changed my life and really gave me my voice and gave me the confidence to realize I had a story to tell and I had you know, a, a, a platform just through my experiences, just like anyone else does. Um, so that was really sort of my, my entry point. Now that was sort of happening side by side as we were developing Emily's Entourage, but I think um, it really, it gave me the confidence to tell my story. I, you know, I, um, I know this comes as a surprise to a lot of people. I'm like a real introvert and I really don't feel comfortable being, you know, front and center. And the only reason I have continued to tell my story is because, you know, the only thing I hate more than that is the continued suffering of our community, you know, because of CF. And so I will do whatever it takes to get us to our shared um, end goals. But um, yeah, it was really that experience in that program that told that showed me that my experience mattered and that I could be an agent of change and um, and gave me the confidence to try. And that really just supports if anybody was at the advocacy section earlier with Jacob Fraker and, and Diane Shader Smith, it really is the power mm -hmm. of the personal story and just how much how one voice can make a difference. And if we're all expressing our voices, very, very powerful. Um, so let's see, Emily, what would be the first thing you do if you got a cure tomorrow? <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, well, first of all, I come out of my isolation. So I've been in strict isolation since March, 2020 because my um, disease is so advanced at this point. And I, um, I'm so hopeful about so many of the things happening in the CF space and unwilling to let COVID get in the way. Um, 
And so, I, I, but to be honest, the first thing I would do if I, you know, was buoyed by, had more, more, you know, stronger lung health and wasn't so terrified, um, I would get on a plane and I would go on a trip. Um, I love traveling so much. I miss it so much. And, um, and I take my family with me. <laughs> we'll circle back to your wonderful mother in a moment. <laughs> um, somebody asks, uh, Emily, is, is Emily's entourage looking into global rare mutations? And along with that, somebody else asked, do you have any advice or tips for people in Brazil? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the way that we think about CF, it is everything about it is global. Um, you know, rare diseases are not geographically limited. So um, we are eagerly looking for people to join our patient registry. Um, the reason for that is, first of all, we work with companies and can make people aware of clinical trial opportunities. And we go directly to the people on our registry. So we don't go through clinics. We don't go through gatekeepers. It is direct to people, um, either people with CF or parents for people that are under um, or guardians for people that are under 18. And that's because we believe that people, um, you know, deserve to hear about those, that, those opportunities directly and make those choices. And it shouldn't depend on, you know, if you have a clinic appointment at the right time and you, know, you happen to have time with the, you know, the research coordinator. Um, we want people to make those choices and to be empowered with those choices themselves. The other important part is that we are working with companies about where to set up their trial sites. And we know that there are parts of the country or parts of the world where um, they don't even get clinical trials. And so we think it's so critical to show the geographic you know, diversity and where people are so that we can help company, direct companies to start trials in your areas. And so I urge people um, to, to fill it out so that just so that we can help put, you know, different countries and different parts of countries on, on the clinical trial radar. Um, and that's really important because if, if they don't know you exist, um, you know, th then, then, you know, then, you know, it's really hard to justify starting clinical trial, setting up sites in those places, which is really time consuming and really expensive. So, um, so that, so that is one thing. So for globally, yeah, we are very much focused on the fact that this is, you know, a global disease and that the 10% is, you know, 10%, not really 10%, but all over. Um, and then for people, for folks in Brazil, I mean, the same, the same thing is true. Um, we're actually working with an advocacy group in Brazil. And so um, I know that, you know, lack of clinical trials is a major issue there. And we're um, eager to help, you know, address that issue. Also, you know, reaching out, like we're eager to connect with everyone. So reach out to us on social media, connect with us, sign up for our updates. Um, you know, we're, we're eager to connect and there's so, there's, you know, so many ways that every single person can help this, you know, collective quest. Absolutely. Um, what science or technology on the horizon are you most excited about yeah. uh, in addressing nonsense mutations? I love this question because, you know, I'm a, fairly optimistic person. And for so long, it really felt like there was no hope to grasp onto. And that was really hard. Um, and so what I am, I, I can honestly say this, and I'm not saying it as lip service, is that I really feel substantially more hopeful today than I have ever felt before, because there are a lot of therapies that are finally making meaningful advances and coming to clinic. Um, and now don't get me wrong, you know, expectations you know, we all learn the hard way. My ex, you know, until I see phase two, phase three data, like my hopes don't go that high. Um, but I am so excited about more than anything, the diversity of therapeutic options that are coming. So, you know, I feel like all of our eggs are no longer in one basket. I'm excited about, you know, the read through um, compounds. I'm excited about mRNA therapies, gene therapies, um, some of, you know, the, the TMEM inhibitors and and there's just so many things happening and that's never been true before. And so, you know, before I, I you know, I'm not taking bets on what it's gonna be, um, but I'm just incredibly hopeful that there are multiple shots on goal, multiple shots that are substantiated by data and promising data. Um, 
And until we see what happens in clinic, we won't really know. But at, at, at last, you know, finally, there, there's actual stuff to look forward to. And that, um, this is, is, that's markedly different than it's ever been. And, and really huge thank you to the researchers and the companies and, um, and obviously this community that has fueled that. But you know the, the the researchers and the scientists and the the um, companies that have um, that have stuck with us and and kept pushing for better and more. And can just we take a collective moment to mourn all the companies because you know people think they say biopharma and you think of this huge entity, but so much of the good work that's going on right now are these smaller biotech companies that are just so on the brink. And, you know, I think if you can think of one company that was really moving forward with its mRNA therapy, <laughs> which, you know, I just think about all these things that are progressing and then for a variety of reasons get put on a shelf. And I, I just wish we could find somebody who says, give me everything that looked promising, but, you know, the capital fell through or some other company bought you out and they didn't see that as a priority, that kind of thing, how to bring those out of the closet to, to yeah. advance them. So frustrating. So linked with that, does Emily's Entourage then partner with biotech companies to support their research? So, uh, so I don't know, I don't know exactly what is meant by partnering. What we, you know, we don't, what we, so we, we've given out a couple grants to like very kind of more like proof of, uh, of, um, um, like to some specific studies to decide if something, to companies like to decide if something is worth pursuing. So for example, we just gave a grant to a company called Mitocon, basically like a, a feasibility study for like a particular thing to see if their technology could apply to CF. Um, you know, in terms of the way that we work with companies, there are a variety of different ways we work with them. I mean, first and foremost is putting the final 10% on their radar and campaigning hard to get it prioritized and to make sure you know, companies don't move on, um, that they don't think the work is done, that we make resources available to them to make it as attractive and um, easy as possible. So, so there's a lot of sort of like, you know, PR and like raising um, awareness about the unmet needs. And then, you know, we work with companies in our um, patient registry clinical trial matchmaking program to when they're recruiting for trials to connect them, um, to, to connect potentially eligible individuals with those trials. And then, you know, we work with companies like at a scientific level, mostly just to help them be successful. Um, we always say we want them to win and um, we want to provide, you know, if we have re research resources or things that or, or connections to people that can be helpful, we um, are always eager to do that. But we don't really we don't really partner in ways other than those kind of more informal ways or through our matchmaking program. And uh, let's see, what is your process uh, to evaluate studies and proposals? Is there a call for letters of intent? Yeah. We have a very rigorous process. So um, we put out a request for applications. And um, when we get, and, and we actually just closed our seventh round in, um, on June 30th, and we got a record number of applications, which was really encouraging because this is like, the early work that can then seed, you know, later um, um, potential therapy. So we've never gotten as many applications as we got this seventh round, and we're thrilled about that. So once we get the applications, we go through, we sort of review them internally. And when I say we, this is led by our chief scientific officer, Dr. Chandra Ghost, who joined our organization in January, and we're thrilled to have her. So we do sort of a, you know, an initial run. We see where there's, you know, make sure things align with our scientific roadmap and the request for applications that we put out for things that align and that we think look you know, promising, we send them out for external review. Um, we also have our scientific advisory board review them and weigh in. Um, then we um, review them again internally and then we have actually presentations. What, if there's outstanding questions, we bring people back in to um, address outstanding questions. And then um, we'll be making announcements about this round um, in late fall of this year. And this is uh, just a, a sharing, but for people who- uh, and Actually, Jerry, can I just mention one other thing? Yeah, so at the end of the day, so our leadership team 
makes the final decisions about what we fund. And I just wanna mention that our scientific advisory board does not, so they review it, they weigh in, um, but because of conflicts of interest, many people on our scientific advisory board are also connected to research. And so we purposely do not have them. So I just wanted to mention that sort of conflict of interest management. <laughs> and I just wanted to um, emphasize too, just how wonderful organizationally, how organizations in the CF realm can work together and support one another and promote one another. And you know, in terms of shots on goal, because you know, we of course have research that we fund every year. And you know, I shared this morning, our first grant was to Dr. Paul Quinton, you know, who just really transformed our understanding of the disease. And right now, just so people know, you know, we're also very focused on when we are making decisions about what, how to help people who are unable to use modulators. So like we're funding phage therapy and gene editing and stem cell research. And uh, so, but we all need to be out there. I mean, there's so much work to be done. And, you know, Fran Francis Collins did our welcoming remarks last year, and I loved it. He said, this is no time to take our feet off the gas pedal. <laughs> and, you know, as you say, it's like, it's time to double down. I just loved when you said that. It, this is not the time we celebrate, but we need to lean in and do the work. And it's just phenomenal what you're doing. And I love the whole registry, direct contact. It's just uh, such a good model. Amazing. Thank you. And thank you for the amazing work that CFRI is doing. And also for you, you know, our collaborations and, and the support that you always provide to us and to all, all organizations. It really it's meaningful and also helpful for all of our shared goals. Oh well, and it's it's all so mutual. I mean, I just I love our conversations and, and projects. And so leading with that, I know um, just to talk again, just to encourage people, the survey that you're going to be launching soon. And if you could just share maybe what some of the highlights were from the last one and what you are interested to find out this time. Yeah. So thank you. I really appreciate that question. So last year, as we were gearing up for our FDA listening session, we pulled together, you know, we did our best to pull together um six patients and one clinician, people with CF, um, the, and, and to represent sort of diverse, you know, racial backgrounds, um, disease states, life stages, like to, to cover, to, to make it as representative a group as we possibly could. But six people is just six people. And so um, we were looking for data about the final 10%, um, you know, to the earlier question, and we really couldn't find it anywhere. Um, and so we realized that we really need to start collecting some information specifically about the 10%. So, you know, and initially it was really just to share with the FDA. And so we had never released a survey. Again, no idea what we were doing, but we knew what we wanted to get. And so we quickly put together a survey. We sent it out to, it, it was for anyone that did not benefit from a CFTR modulator, no matter why, you know, what mutation you had, what, you know, whatever it was. We sent it out to people all over. We had the incredible help of so many people and organizations like CFRI helping us to get the word out there. Um, we got over 430 responses. Um, it, the, the information was really interesting, validated some things we thought, you know, sort of was more surprising in some other ways. Um, we published it in pediatric pulmonology. We made it, we took care of the payroll of the paywall, made it publicly accessible, also presented it as a poster session at the European CF Society conference. We held a webinar, um, really tried to get the information out there because we are so grateful for everyone that participated and you deserve to see the data you contributed. And so it was so successful. We are doing it again this year. We're actually gonna be releasing it this week. Um, again, I would so appreciate everyone's help. We are committed to making all the data publicly accessible to everyone. It is intended to be a resource to this community um, and everyone, and especially people with CF and their families. So um, it will all be publicly accessible. And we just, we need people to fill it out and to spread the word because, um, you know, the, the more people take it, the more compelling our case. I think some of the big takeaways, you know, I off the top of my head, I mean, just reinforcing the huge um, emotional and physical burdens. One of the things that was really shocking to me, not shocking like intellectually, but I guess just seeing the numbers was really shocking, was also the emotional impact on caregivers and the number of people suffering from depression and anxiety within the CF community, but actually also in the caregiver population. 
Um, the, another number, this is sort of a random one I was shocked by was, I think it was like, don't quote me on this, I'm just going off memory, but like something like 15% of the CF community was in the hospital more than, gosh, I don't remember what it was, like seven times in one year. It was like a really a large number. Um, trying to think what else. I mean, we heard very loud and clear how people feel left behind, um, how, feel, how scared they feel. A lot of comments about, you know, fear of the community forgetting them and moving on um, and the bittersweetness. That was really profound. And one of the things that Dr. Jennifer Taylor Kelser said she led our webinar and was a co-author on our study and presented at the European CF Society Conference was um, about these like health traumas. Um, and I think that our survey data really spoke about these like, you know, these traumas that people are experiencing um, in their healthcare and their health lives. Um, and that was really profound for me to hear, you know, as a member of the community too. So, oh. um, but also it's all public. So look on our website, yes. you can find all the data it's in, in the pediatric pulmonology, it's all open access. Um, and we'd love to hear your thoughts and, um, and also additional questions. Wonderful. And I just looked at the clock. This time has flown by. I'm actually supposed to be somewhere else. <laughs> I'm joking. I mean, like, literally we are soon to be, but I, so I hate to cut this off because I feel like we have such rich discussion that could continue. But with that, Emily, you are just a gift to the CF community. Your work is so powerful, so impactful. You personally are so impactful. And thank you for all you do. Thank you for sharing your time with us today. And we will be in very close contact. Thank you. I really, I appreciate it more than I can possibly express. Thank you. Thank you. And so everybody, if you go to Emily's Entourage to the website, you'll be able to see the results, correct? And then certainly between, if you're at her website, you'll see it, but certainly through our social media and e-news, you will see all the links once the survey is out in the public. We encourage everybody to participate. Emily, thank you again. Thank you, and thank you all so much.